The Old Pilot's Plane Tales Willy Wonka and the Fighter Pilot Born in Wales to immigrant parents, he would grow to a height of 6 foot 6 inches, that's 198 centimetres, and climbing into the cockpit of a World War II fighter was going to be a problem, but he managed it. He used to be an army officer in North Africa, and when the war started he found himself guarding a road of Dar es Salaam with a platoon of local Askari troops. So he decided instead to join the Royal Air Force, and before long had earned the moniker Lofty. His injury in a crash would eventually result in him being invalided out of the service, but this led to the writing of his first book, something that would blossom into a career and make him a household name around the world. Lofty would pen books that charmed children for generations and generations. Books that would have delightfully unexpected endings, macabre, unsentimental, darkly comic stories featuring villainous adult enemies. James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, and so many more. For Lofty, who was an army officer, fighter pilot, and spy, but perhaps better known as the renowned author who sold over 100 million copies of his books, Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl's family lived in Clandaff, part of Cardiff in Wales, but his father, Harold, was a Norwegian who came from Sarpsborg. When his first wife passed away, Harald remarried to Sophie Hesselberg, and in 1916, Roald was born. Named after the famous polar explorer Amundsen, he grew up bilingual, with Norwegian being spoken at home and English at school. He was given a good education, and only occasionally marred by a prank such as putting a dead mouse into a jar of gobstopper sweets for which he was caned. This became known as the Great Mouse Plot of 1924, and everlasting gobstoppers featured in a book his future self would write. His life in public school wasn't unusual for the time and often involved ritual cruelty and domination by older students who made the younger boys their personal servants. Corporal punishment was common and Roald would relive some of these darker times in his books. In subsequent reflections he would comment that all through my school life I was appalled by the fact that masters and senior boys were allowed literally to wound other boys and sometimes quite severely. I couldn't get over it. I've never got over it. After school he would join Shell Petroleum and following training he was assigned first to Mombasa in Kenya but then he joined two other Shell employees in Shell House just outside Dar es Salaam. These three dealt with snakes, scorpions, and other wild animals, as well as Shell's interests throughout the entire of Tanganyika, now Tanzania. 
the life of adventure and the luxury of the cooks and servants of Shell House were soon to become a distant memory as the Second World War loomed. In Dar es Salaam, the British made plans to round up the hundreds of Germans living there, and Rold was commissioned as a lieutenant in the King's African Rifles, commanding a platoon of indigenous Askari troops who were serving in the colonial army. He found that guarding roads around the city wasn't quite what he wanted to do, so after a tortuous 600-mile drive to Nairobi in Kenya, he was accepted into the Royal Air Force with 16 others in his draft and commenced training. At the end of the war, of those 16, he would be just one of three survivors. His morning started only after the grazing zebras were chased off the airfield and the tiger moth trainers were prepared. This rugged little biplane had an open cockpit, and Dahl was so tall that his head stuck well above the little windscreen. His instructor commented that breathing in the powerful slipstream might be a problem. Indeed it was, and Dahl had to keep ducking down to fill his lungs. Having survived that first flight, however, he discovered that a thin cotton scarf around his nose and mouth enabled him to breathe at least. Soloing after only seven hours and forty minutes, he was sent off on basic navigational exercises across the game-filled plains of East Africa. Elated, he wrote, How many young men, I keep asking myself, are lucky enough to go whizzing and soaring through the sky above a country as beautiful as Kenya. Even the aeroplane and the petrol are free. His training continued in Iraq, near Baghdad, at RAF Habania, which they nicknamed Havabanana. Here they flew Hawker Hearts and Audaxes, armed with machine guns, and learned the basics of combat. They flew from dawn until eleven in the morning, when the temperature reached an unbearable 46 degrees centigrade, 115 Fahrenheit. Everything became suddenly more serious, Dahl remembered. On the 24th of May 1940, Roald Dahl was presented with his RAF pilot's wings and rated as above average. He continued to train on airspeed Oxfords and Fairy Gordons before being posted to 80 Squadron near the Suez Canal and on to Gloucester Gladiators. A pre-war biplane, the Gladiator was a robust workhorse, but it was outmatched by the German Messerschmitts and would be withdrawn from service, but it did sterling work for the Navy and in the more remote areas on the edges of the conflict. When first shown his new steed, the slightly naive Dahl was told that, since there was only one cockpit, he'd have to teach himself. The transition from student to operational pilot was going to be fast, as pretty soon he was ordered to fly his gladiator to one of 80 Squadron's forward airstrips in Egypt, near the Nile Delta. It was a fairly daunting flight, consisting of a leg over the Nile to Alexandria, then on to a bomber airfield at Fuka, where he would get instructions for the final leg to the FOB. This was to be accomplished without navigation aids or even a radio, just a map strapped to one leg. 
he successfully arrived at Nfuka, whereupon the location of his destination, about thirty miles south of the Mersa Matreur, was pointed out to him, with the advice that, you can spot it for miles. So he set off straight there. After a worrying fifty minutes of flight time, he still hadn't spotted it, and with dusk approaching and his fuel running low, he saw no alternative than to land on the boulder-strewn desert below. Coming in slowly, as slowly as he dared, literally hanging on the prop, he chopped the throttle and prayed. The gladiator's undercarriage hit a boulder and collapsed, ploughing the aircraft into the sand at 75 miles an hour, smashing Dahl's head against the gun sight. The impact fractured his skull, smashed his nose, knocked out several teeth, and left him temporarily blinded, but he somehow managed to grope his way clear of the burning wreckage before the gasoline tanks and ammunition exploded. The crash attracted the attention of a British Army patrol who got him into the hospital in Alexandria, where he was given the depressing news that he would probably never fly again. An inquiry revealed that the CO at Fuka had given Dahl the wrong information. He had come down in the no-man's land between the British and Italian armies. After six months recovering, he amazed the doctors by regaining his fitness to fly, and after a short time refreshing his skills, he rejoined his squadron, who were now in Greece flying hurricanes. He climbed in with great difficulty considering his height, I might add, and got on with the job at hand. He'd been given a brand new hurricane fitted with extra fuel tanks, and he took off from RAF Abu Sir to cross the Mediterranean and reach Greece. Of his first ever flight over the sea, he recounted, Bailing out into the med didn't worry me nearly as much as the thought of spending four and a half hours squashed into the tiny metal cockpit. When I sat in a hurricane, I had the posture of an unborn baby in the womb, with my knees almost touching my chin. I wasn't quite sure I could do it. But do it he did, and after nearly five hours he landed at Menidi, where the obliging airman had to lift him bodily from the cockpit in agonies of cramp. Finally, he rejoined his squadron near Athens, who were embroiled in the battle to drive the Italians out of Greece, a campaign that had been going well until the Germans came to the aid of their faltering ally. When Roald arrived, the tide had turned in favour of the Axis forces, and the dogged Greek and British forces were being overwhelmed by superior numbers of German troops, armour and aircraft. For the RAF, the retreat brought depressing reminders of the fall of France. No sooner had the ground crews finished pitching their tents than orders came to move to yet another makeshift landing ground. They were under the constant threat of strafing by marauding ME-109s and 110s operating from airfields in Salonika. Yet the British airmen's efforts went largely unappreciated by Allied ground forces. Battered by the Luftwaffe and seldom seeing a British plane, they grumbled that the RAF stood for rare as fairies. 
Dahl's arrival was treated in a pretty off-hand manner with an OK, hello, we've been expecting you for some time. He was fortunate to share a tent with Flying Officer David Coke, second son of the Earl of Leicester. Coke had fought in the Battle of Britain, and he wasted no time in briefing the new arrival on the discouraging realities of the air war over Greece. We have no radar here, and precious little RT. The Greeks are our radar. We have a Greek peasant sitting on the top of every mountain for miles around, and when he spots a bunch of German planes, he calls up the ops room here on a field telephone. As for the enemy, he continued... The bombers you meet will mostly be JU-88s. The gunners use incendiary tracer bullets, and they'll aim like they're aiming a hosepipe. So if you're attacking a JU-88 from astern, make sure you get well below him, so the rear gunner can't hit you. Go for one of his engines. The very next day, on a lone patrol, Dahl encountered the Uncas, six of them, which he attacked from behind and found himself the attention of six rear gunners. The Germans were making for the mountains, and at last Rold could isolate one, which he fatally damaged. As it spiralled earthwards, trailing smoke, its three-man crew parachuted clear. A few days later, he brought down another one that was about to bomb an ammunition ship. Misjudging his speed, he dived so steeply that he almost followed the stricken Junkers into the blue water of the bay. Pulling out, he found the air thick with vengeful 109s. I swear there must have been 30 or 40 of them within a few hundred yards of me, he wrote. It would have been suicide to stay and fight. Diving flat out for the ground, he fled the scene, leapfrogging his hurricane over olive trees, stone walls and herds of cows, until the 109s eventually abandoned their pursuit. Finally came the decision to leave Greece to the Germans. That same day there was a massive air battle above Athens with 15 hurricanes, the remnants of three RAF squadrons, on one side, and a hundred-plus JU-88s and Dornier DO-17s escorted by ME-109s and ME-110s. Wherever I looked, I saw an endless blur of enemy fighters whizzing towards me from every side. I threw my hurricane around as best I could, and whenever a Hun came into my sights, I pressed the button. It was truly the most breathless and in a way the most exhilarating time I've had in my life. Whether I had shot anyone down or even hit any of them, I couldn't say. He returned to his airfield soaked in sweat, his ammunition exhausted and the hurricane peppered with holes. The next day the remaining hurricanes did their best to protect the evacuation fleet but Rold was ordered to fly a sealed package to hand to an agent who was remaining behind. When he found him, he was standing in the middle of the rough airstrip with a rifle as an ME-109 shot the place up. When it came time to leave Greece, Rold found himself in a Sunderland so crammed full of men that there were six chaps squeezed into the lavatory. He rejoined the squadron in Haifa, Palestine, but began to suffer from disabling headaches and blackouts, an after-effect of his head injury, 
and his flying career was brought to an abrupt end. He left his operations as an ace, having shot down more than five enemy aircraft. In 1942, he was sent to Washington, D.C. as an assistant air attaché, where he met author C.S. Forrester. This meeting was to set the seed for his future career as a writer, when Forrester encouraged him to write about his wartime experiences. There followed the books A Piece of Cake, Going Solo, and an amusing story about the mischievous creatures that supposedly played RAF aircraft, the Gremlins. It was whilst in Washington, and with his privileged access to the top echelons of American political life, including the President, that he was recruited by the spymaster Intrepid. Dahl worked for British Security Coordination, part of MI6, and he supplied intelligence to Churchill, on the goings-on in and around the White House. At the end of the war, Dahl's injuries prevented him from remaining within the RAF, so he turned to writing as a career. He wrote for many television programs, such as Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and That Was the Week That Was, and many episodes of Tales of the Unexpected. He wrote the screenplay for the 007 film You Only Live Twice scripts for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and many, many other contributions to film. However, I suspect that his much-loved children's books will be his longest-lasting legacy. I've already mentioned a few, but other titles like Fantastic Mr. Fox, Danny, Champion of the World, The Enormous Crocodile, George's Marvelous Medicine and the BFG will bring back memories of his wonderful talent to many of he did all this whilst enduring personal tragedy. His four-month-old son was severely injured in an accident. His first daughter died of measles encephalitis, and his lovely American actress' wife suffered three burst cerebral aneurysms whilst pregnant with their fifth child. A man who gifted the world with some of the finest children's literature ever written and who cemented his place in history as one of our greatest authors, passed away in 1990 at the age of 74. If you enjoyed this story, then how about hopping over to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leaving us a review? It'll be much appreciated. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>